And just like that, we have reached the last episode of season three of Black Stage Podcast. I'm thrilled to be able to share that we had Felicia Hatcher, the president of Black Ambition, on today's episode. I want to thank Felicia, I want to thank Pharrell, and I want to thank their team at Black Ambition for supporting us, for partnering with us this entire season. It's been great to collaborate with them, and I am so excited for the future, for what they're going to do, and all the different lives that they're going to impact. Uh, Felicia is brilliant. And I'm so thrilled that you all are about to hear this amazing conversation that I had. Stay tuned. We got season four coming up real soon, but sit tight. This episode's going to be great. Take care and have a great holiday season. Okay, so we are in the season finale of Black Stage season three, and I have the privilege to be in conversation with the extraordinary, the iconic, the legendary. <laughs> I can just keep going on and on and on and on. But Felicia Hatcher is on the line. We are going to have an amazing conversation today to talk about all things Black Ambition, her journey in becoming the president and CEO of Black Ambition in the state of Black entrepreneurship and investing in Black and Latinx communities. Felicia, how are you? I'm doing pretty good, Brandon, man. It's good to see you. It's good to see you too. You just, uh, people can't see you, but you're just like, you know, sun is shining. Good to hear you. Good to hear your voice. The the glasses are incredible. So, I mean, when people hear you, just, I just want them to have the visual of like, Felicia looks like heaven right now. She looks well and rested and, and and we're, we're about to have a good conversation. Do I have the Oprah light on? What did she say? A million dollars she invests in her light? It's the Oprah glow. I don't know what it is about Oprah in these interviews this year. Year, but she keeps getting the best interviews so, and I watched the Adele uh inter- <laughs> the Adele I interview yet. I want to watch it it. It, it, it it was so good and yeah. uh and Oprah just had that just that ball of sunshine light so you definitely are bringing that energy to well that. she spent she said she spends a million dollars on her lights and so that's why her sets always look amazing I I think I spent thirty dollars on this from Amazon so I'm not quite there but I hope it looks good heaven shining down <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, you know, as everyone knows who, who listens to this podcast, we have had the privilege to partner with Black Ambition, and we promised a very special season finale. And I thought, you know, nothing can be more special than to talk to you, right? Um, Felicia, you have been on quite a journey uh, as an entrepreneur. You have built many, many things. You have served many, many people. And, you know, I really just want to begin from the beginning of where you kind of like started this journey. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got your start and, and how that took you to where you are now? Yeah, my entrepreneurial start, oof, uh, I don't know, probably it started slinging Girl Scout cookies like back <laughs> in the day. Uh, it helped me learn quite a few things, right? Just about um, building something, right? Believing in something bigger than yourself. Uh, what a smile can do, right? Smile can go a really long way. And then um, having a good product at the end of the day that put a smile on people's faces and that they love to like buy, right? And so learned all that at eight years old right? as a brownie. No, but, uh, you know, my my first business was a, a educational consulting business uh, as a freshman in college. Sounded way more sophisticated than what it was, but I had won a bunch of scholarship money and then, Uh, as a C student in high school. And, you know, when that happens, mom gets really proud, starts uh, bragging to the church friends. And then the church friends are like, can you show my child who's almost about to 
flunk out of high school, like how to get scholarships and go to college too. And so, and just like moms do, they're like, you're spending all your time helping people. You need to be charging. I was like, charging? I just want to give, give it, give it. She's like, no, you need to charge because it's taking a lot of your time and you're not focusing on school. So that was the very first uh, business like that I actually started, right? And really probably where I learned some of the best lessons and the hardest lessons. And one of those lessons was one of my employees stole my contract from me. And uh, yeah, yeah, I was heartbroken. I actually never wanted to start a business ever again. Uh, I just could not move forward from that level of distrust and disappointment, but then also seeing the red flags and ignoring them, right? Because you just believe in what you're building so much that you're also not thinking that you need to protect the thing that you're building um, and put the right people in place. And so I learned a lot of lessons in my teens and in my early 20s about business, um, what I want to do and what I don't want to do. But I would say the thing that has fueled everything since, you know, being 17 years old and in high school and having a guidance counselor tell me I was not going to make it to college or university was uh, I building something with very limited resources and becoming extremely resourceful. Um, it's the thing I keep talking about over and over and over again over these past few weeks, but that taught me the biggest lesson. And then also not wanting people, especially young people, to go through what I went through, um, all the naysayers, all the things that you were told that are, are actually not true when you talk about like your innovation potential and your capacity. And that has fueled my career, right? And so um, that journey in, in high school, that journey in college, um, you know, leaving college early to start a business that then got stolen from me and the faith that my parents had, like, you got to figure this out. Uh, worked in a really great career in product launch and experiential marketing for some tech companies as well and some experiential marketing firms. And then started a gourmet popsicle company, right? Like really randomly uh, seven years of my life, but also taught me some amazing lessons. Also, um, you know, was able to get some really dope uh, companies that were our customers from Google to PayPal to Forever 21 to Cadillac. Um, and I can keep going. And we started Code Fever um, based off of our company that was called Feverish and wanted to train young people to really understand the context of what was going on at the time when startup ecosystems were just starting to sprout up and it wasn't inclusive of people that looked at me, looked like me, no one cared that we weren't a part of it. This was eight years ago, right? Now, everyone wants everyone to be a part of all the things, but yeah. about eight years ago, no one cared. Right. And um, that really sent us down uh, this journey that we've been on for almost 10 years now, which is making sure that black people um, and black communities get to be active participants and financial beneficiaries of the innovation economy and everything that it has to offer. And so that was the quick and dirty, right? I wrote some books in between that, travel the world, had some kids in between all of that as well, got married, a donut shop, all of that um, over the past few years. And then that, so we started this Center for Black Innovation, which was you know formerly known as uh, Code Fever and Black Tech Week. And you know about six, six seven months ago, uh, I got asked by, uh, you know, Pharrell's team, you know, his chief of staff to come and lead Black Ambition um, as its first CEO. And so um, I literally went from C student to CEO, right? Like I remember writing that down on like 
notebooks and like articles that I've written. And it's the manifestation of that in a lot of different ways. And so a lot happened right in between the dash of all those things. But that is the moment that I'm in right now, which is a very you know, unique moment of building ecosystems over the past few years, especially in Miami, which Miami is going through this really interesting time, right? It was from a Twitter chat that um, people felt like started the whole thing, but I'm like, people have been working on building Miami's tech and startup ecosystem for, you know, eight years prior to that tweet. And now we're in this moment where what you know, so many people had worked so hard for, we're starting to see the fruits of our labor to a certain extent. There's still a lot more that needs to happen, but in the result of that, building the city that was more conducive to Black people being able to uh, find the opportunities, connect to the opportunities, connect to the dollars and grow their businesses in an area where they don't have to go to Silicon Valley is a lot of the work that we've done. Um, so now being able to wear the hat where I get to directly fund those businesses, right, um, has been something that has been a shining light for me over the past few months. That's incredible. And I, and I appreciate that overview because I think that you've done so much, Felicia, that literally it just has to go in a book. Like it has to, <laughs> the book has to be written and it's going to be about four to five hundred pages and it's going to be your it's going to be a New York Times bestseller and it's going to be a good afternoon read every day. So like, I look forward to that book and I'll be purchasing it. Whenever. <laughs> I know you're too busy right now to probably write it, but when it gets written, uh-huh. I will be enjoying it. Okay. Um, I, I do want to ask before we kind of like lean more into the present though, um, Black Tech Week, you know, I think that Black Tech Week was largely a huge catalyst for um, people in Black tech spaces. And I really just kind of like want you to kind of expound a little bit about why you created it and what was its purpose, because you you look at, you know, so many different, you know, events, right, that are happening all across the country, across the world. Um, but really, I believe that Black Tech Week was the first, right? It was like the one that was leading the trail. And then you have the Afrotechs coming behind and you have all these different other events um, that are happening. And then also just Black folks congregating and having conversations about what is it like to be in these spaces. And so can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were definitely one of the first of its kind, right? Um, I think we started around the same time Platform started, which I thought was just an absolute amazing, amazing conference of bringing people together. But we started Black Tech Week, and I always get the credit for it, but my husband and my my other half, Derek, is the one who actually started Black Tech Week. I'm on um, Derek Pearson. <laughs> so I always got to give him credit. And we started it for a few reasons. Um, you know, one of the reasons were we were training young people in, uh, you know, digital literacy, computer programming, how to navigate startup ecosystems as brilliant people of color, right? And we could not promise that they could actually get a job, get an investment check, get an opportunity, like be able to scale their bit. Like we couldn't. So we felt like we were like a train and pray organization. Like we were training and then we were praying, please, oh, please, something be there for them when we finish this boot camp. And so we were just like, well, we need to, like entrepreneurs do, well, I got to solve that problem, right? And no one else was solving or attempting to solve that problem. And so, you know, we started Black Tech Week with the premise that if not any time throughout the year, we could ensure that all the resources that you could possibly need as a tech professional, as a startup founder, as someone that was 
a dreamer or tech curious, an educator, whatever you were, whatever hat that you you wear, that you would be able to have those opportunities come within arm's reach of you was the reason we started it. Um, you know, we started it at uh, Miami-Dade Community College, North Campus, Lee Tony. I always got had to give her credit because, you know, when you have those people that you can just say, yo, I got this idea. Like, can you help? And she's like, I got a venue, right? I can get you some volunteers. I can get you some students. Um, I can get you a little bit of funding, like whatever you need, let's make this happen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it was such a beautiful experience because not only did we have students involved, but government officials and celebrities and startup founders and, you know, some of the most impressive people that are funders and entrepreneurs and founders have graced the stages of Black Tech Week over the six years that we ran it. And so not just running the full week in Miami, but then we ran it in seven other cities across the United States. And so New York and LA and Kansas City and Tulsa, Oklahoma and New Orleans were some of the places that we were able to Austin that we ran the conference. And so it was beautiful. You know, we had anywhere from, uh, you know, uh, Bobby, Bobby Seal, right, of, of Black Panther, one of the found one of the founders, right, to Michael Seibel, the CEO of like Y Combinator and everyone that you can imagine in between that. Right. And being able to show the the innovation that always existed in black neighborhoods and so so much of our work we talked about and we deemed a coin like innovation deserts right people having to travel miles in order to get access to fruit fresh fruits and vegetables were food deserts and people were familiar with that but people didn't realize that we were having innovation deserts in our communities that in order to be an active participant of the you know the innovation economy you had to leave your city you had to leave your community that sends such an awful picture that innovation doesn't happen in our communities, but we know that it does. It just never gets the respect or the respectable amount of funding. And so a big part of Black Tech Week was also running it in Black communities, which I, you know, was a mile of, 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 of you know, issues from wanting to, you know, running it into in facilities that did not have Wi-Fi. You know, in 2020, 2017, 2018, venues within Black communities that could be a beacon and a magnetic like force of resources and conferences and convenings didn't have proper Wi-Fi to run a tech conference. You know, we ran a tech conference one year for three days without Wi-Fi and low cell phone signal service like, you know, but but we were committed to saying we're not going to do this on South Beach. We're going to do this in Overtown. We're not going to do this in South Beach. We're going to do this in Little Haiti. And we may have to be a little bit more patient and we may need to bring in the beacons and like the Wi-Fi and all that. But we're committed to the fact that you could walk out of your your house and you could walk to the conference and you're going to have a really good time. And, um, you know, that that was that was it. Great funders that were a part of it as well. but. You know, we decided to uh, end Black Tech Week, right? And so the full week will will no longer happen with the Center for Black Innovation. It's shifting. It, there'll, there'll be a new conference that comes up. I'm not going like I'm not going to spill the beans on that. I'll let Derek do that. Oh, but um, oh, you know, it was it was seven it years. <laughs> Seven years and amazing impact, right? And millions of dollars raised, and we could see significant shifts in revenue 
um, which is what I rather care about, right? Like helping black businesses stay whole and and produce revenue and become better employers and better, you know, um, citizens of their communities. Like those are the things that we ultimately care about. And those are the successes that we, we saw and I would say, Brennan, one of the things that was um, a really hard pill to swallow for us and what ultimately led to not wanting to do it anymore is that we saw so many um, white VCs and angel investors that would come up on our stages, make all kind of promises to black entrepreneurs and founders and then ghost them, not answer phones, not answer emails, not make any of the connections, but they could tweet and say that they spoke at Black Tech Week. And seeing that over and over and over again, again, is this disheartening thing that you created a platform that allows people to um, ghost your community. And that was something that just became much harder and harder every single time to sit with, right? Because it's just like, all right, well, we can say we have all this money on the stage, but then they're not like picking up the phone. They're not actually delivering what they've promised. And when you realize that you become kind of a conduit for that, it's something that I, I don't know. It was just really hard for me personally to to sit well with that, right? And yeah. and so um, that's also why like programming became the bigger emphasis with Center for Black Innovation than just convening. And so I'm going on a little bit of a tangent, but it was one of those things that just you know when you have like the little needles that stick at you, like it's not this massive thing, but it's this little thing that irks you that become that kept coming bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's just like I don't like that. Um, and, and, and I don't being, like and being performative like is not is being not, performative. Yeah, yeah. It's, not, it's not something that feels good. Right. And I mm-hmm. think that that's the one thing that I continuously try to tell, especially like, you know, early stage entrepreneurs. It's like, don't worry about getting on those big stages. Those big stages will be there. What you want to do is actually create an impact and have a sustainable mm-hmm. product. Right. That is going to be able to move you forward and allow your community to blossom from it. Mm-hmm. All the flashy stuff. It is here today, gone tomorrow. Just yeah. like the folks that you're talking about who are on the stage, they swoop into Miami, they sit on the stage, say like, we care, and then we're not going to answer any phone calls. And, and I can understand why and, and, and how that hurts. And I, and I think that that also speaks to a little bit about what you were talking about earlier around like, we're not going to do it in South Beach, we're going to do it in Little Haiti, right? The, in, the intention around like investing in Black communities and making sure that it's proximate to those who you're trying to serve. And I really want to kind of like, transition that that point into the kind of like the present that in, in what you're doing now you're you're investing in black and latinx founders um within black ambition and so can you just talk to me a little bit about the creation of black ambition sure. and and a little bit about the strategy and how you approach the work yeah yeah black ambition was founded in, in 2020 by pharrell williams um, and with a few different premises, right? But the biggest, biggest kind of mission behind that is creating an environment where Black and, 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 and Latinx and HBCU startup founders are, their path to entrepreneurship is completely uninterrupted. Um, and we know what the interruptions have been, right? In so many different ways and every which way they, they, they turn and creating an environment where in all of our best intentions and hopes that 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 never happens again, or we can lessen those things from happening. And in order to do so, we need to create unprecedented access to capital 
And then like the real yes people, right? Not the people that have the power to say no, no power authority to say yes, like the true yes people that can become strategic partners, that can become funders, that can open doors and open windows, right? Um, to what is possible for those founders. And so we've done that through a prize competition, like a national prize competition where we identified really about 300 companies that we worked with over the last year through a five month cohort style mentorship program, literally giving them access to everything that they could possibly need and the support that they needed. And then we picked 34 of those companies that we funded between $15,000 to $1 million. And so this past year we funded like a little, about $3.3 million um, in, in checks that we wrote to black Latinx and then HBCU startup founders. And so highly, highly inspired and highly impressed by all the companies, really all the companies, but especially the 34 that we, we, we funded, they have like, I get the updates, like investor updates from them almost like on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. And I'm just like, y'all, y'all impress me so much, right? I'm so proud of you. Not only did they get the funding from us, but they've gone on to raise significant funding from, from Google and from Lightship Capital. And, um, you know, we have one of the companies that's getting ready to roll out into 500 major retail outlets. And I'm just so impressed. And I think the thing that, um, you know, Pharrell and I talk about quite often is just like these companies were here before Black Ambition, right? They were, and they were being overlooked before Black Ambition. And, um, you know, and that's that's the bigger problem in which we're trying to solve is the narrative shift of like, why aren't you investing in these companies? Why aren't you betting on them? And why does it take us to invest in them before you care? And, you know, we're fortunate enough to be able to play that role, but we would like to get to, to that point where we don't have to play that role because those companies are valued and you can see where they can provide and, and get and generate a return for you. And the respect is there of how they serve their consumer base and how they're serving consumer bases that you may not understand, um, but they are showing outsized returns over and over again, and they need all the support, right? They need the mentorship and they need the funding. And so many people are throwing out around mentorship and not no fun, not any funding and both need to happen. Right. So, you know, a good friend of mine, Danny, she's always talking about, she's like, I am over mentored and underfunded. Like, do not come to me anymore with your time unless you're coming to me with dollars because it requires both. Mm. And if you're not coming with both, then please spare me. She's just, she had a whole like uh, kind of like a uh, rant that she did on social media because we're seeing that happen a lot here in Miami, right? And so with all the attention on Miami over this past year, like black founders are getting invited to dinners and no one's giving them any deals. And it's more performative than I've, I've seen in the seven years of building all of this. That's just really disheartening. And so stop doing it for the gram and actually write checks because money is an energy exchange, right? And it's the, the best way to show that I truly believe in this, that I'm going to have this energy exchange with you of writing a check to say, that's how much I believe in what, you, what you're building. And ultimately I understand how big of a role that this plays in getting you to the next level. And that's what we need more of. And, and, and to push it a little bit further, write the right check, right? Do not give no $10,000, $20,000 check when you are a billionaire, when you are a billionaire, Felicia, and you can write a seven-figure check and you know that this is a seven-figure organization or company. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that that's so important. We, we were able to interview Khadija 
Mm -hmm. uh, and she is such a light uh, and so extraordinary. And it was so incredible. And she talked about, you know, how life changing being able to like be in conversation with you and Pharrell and being able to like get this funding um, has been for her and, and what she's going to do. And, and she really kind of broke down just almost like the gaps in the industry, in the communities that she served. And I was just completely thrown because I was like, okay, so we have black hair products, but there's no black people who own them. And there's no black people who run the beauty supply store. I said, I said, how does that work? She said, Brennan, let me tell you, she broke that thing down. <laughs> and I was, I was, I was shocked. And, and I'm interested in what you, what you kind of think about this, Felicia, because, you know, there is clearly bias in investing. You can call it a lot of different other, other things, but we're going to call it bias in investing today. Mm -hmm. How do black and brown leaders get around that, right? Because, you know, you sit here and you say, well, I got the relationships. I have all the right language to, to speak about my work. I've built, I have the proven metrics. I'm showing all the right things, but I'm still not getting the capital because of the color line, right? How can you get around that? Is there a way to get around that? And, and what are you seeing right now? Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's more so like, let's push through that. Right. And I think there's so many different um, alternative sources to capital these days that you don't have to deal with the racist BS. Right. Not saying that you should not go the venture route because, you know, being able to use other people's money is a great thing to leverage in order to grow really fast, which is what startups do. Right. They need to rapidly accelerate what they're doing in the course of about two to three, two to three years. But I think when you're when you see, you know, Don Dixon raise over a million dollars in equity crowdfunding and she's a black female founder. Right. Um, with her company based in Ohio, she's not in the Bay Area. She's in the Midwest. You see um, Max Tuckman with Caribou. And I think the first Latina to raise over a million dollars with equity crowdfunding like that success leaves clues. Right. That's a way for you to leverage your friends and family who may not be able to write you a half a million dollar or a million dollar check, but they can write you, you know, maybe $5,000 or they can fund you at $5,000 through an equity crowdfunding platform. And they can tell five more of their friends. I would love to see more of, of that. Right. I also think that in this moment where corporations have what pledged 66 plus, I don't know, people, the number is all over the place, but it's somewhere in the 60, $60 billion dollars allocated. And I think the last thing that I show, well, not allocated, committed. And I think over only about four or $5 billion of that has been allocated. It's definitely time to be applying more pressure to these corporations. Like you, you said that you were financially committed, like show us the money, like where, where is it? How are you deploying it? Here are the opportunities. And I think we need to be relentless with that pressure. I think we've applied the pressure and then we put, you know, then we then we lighten up like we took the foot off the pedal a little bit. And I think it's time to apply, reapply the pressure in ways where they start deploying that capital. And then I think the other part of that is we can bring other people that are not necessarily savvy investors into the fold. Right. I would love to see more of that. I'm, you know, I think I'm starting to see more programs pop up where they're like, hey, we're training people. Um, that are high net worth because the narrative is all black and proud people are broke. And that's not true, right? We have pockets of wealth all throughout the United States. We have pockets of wealth all throughout the globe that you don't have to explain your blackness before they can write a check. 
you don't have to go in this deep dive of explaining the market potential or the global market potential because the global market is is prim- primarily people of color. And the fact that you don't have to tend, spend the time or the frustration or the mental, you know, exhaust the, your mental capacity on just explaining why this is important, it can be easier to say, you know what, I'm going to ch- take the business committee from my local church and I'm going to take them on an ecosystem tour and I'm going to arrange a dinner with five or six black entrepreneurs here and we're going to talk to them. And we're going to tell them how they they can deploy their capital in us. And maybe that's a $10,000 check or a $20,000 check. And I, I know people are looking for more zeros behind that check, but you know, if, if they are in that position, they know other people are in that position. And what's happening is we're assuming that they know our industry and they're refusing to invest in it. And they don't, they understand very, um, safe investment opportunities or very traditional investment opportunities. And you can actually just take the little bit of time to educate them. And, you know, when with with um, Center for Black Innovation, we had that happen. Like one of our entrepreneurs that was based in there, um, we had an older older woman and her sister. They were angel investors. They weren't on the covers of any of those things. But when they saw companies that they were interested in, they would have conversations and they ended up investing in one of those companies. I think they may have wrote her a ten or twenty thousand dollar check. They were able to pay that back with interest within, I think, six months. And they've gone on to build close to a seven figure business. Wow. That was their very first check. They were running around like crazy at all the startup events and couldn't get the time of day. And meanwhile, the person in the cubicle next to them was very well suited to be that investor. And it started with a conversation. And so we can have more of that. We can start convening our people um, to start investing in our businesses. And it may take a little bit more legwork, but that's a, such a much easier conversation than having to deal with the racist BS that we have to deal with oftentimes that blows at, um, you know, our capacity to be as leaders because it, con- it starts questioning, am I building the right thing? Because this person understands, or does this person just not understand what it is and they don't see the value in it? Let me go to where I'm celebrated and where people understand. How do you, how do you follow up to something like that? Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I can, but I, I, I think from what you said, there were a couple of key questions that kind of popped up for me and then also some commentary. First thing is it, it, when you're talking about just kind of like who is investing and what does an investor uh, look like? It reminded me of a comment that I heard you say a while back ago in regards to um, Black people have always done crowdfunding. It's called mm-hmm. passing the plate insurance. Yeah. And I thought that, I was like, wow, I said, that is brilliant. Because like, we don't even think of crowdfunding in that way anymore. It's like, we've been seeing our grandmas pass that plate for years and put their $5 or $20 or their $100 in there. And that was keeping the church going. And we're not even thinking about that as investing or building an institution. Mm-hmm. The second thing is that you're talking about um, applying pressure and how like, you know, the pedal is kind of like, you know, alleviated uh, a little bit. But, you know, in 2020, we really kind of saw um, some things that we have never seen before. And, and what I'm what I'm hearing 
in, in a lot of different spaces is that, you know, this call for racial equity is dying down, right? The, the, that the, the money is starting to dry up. And, and I really would like to see if you could speak to that, um, if that, if you find that to be true, right? Obviously money doesn't just dry up, but the, the uh, intention in the, the awareness uh, falls back. So can you talk a little bit about that and what you're seeing in this space right now? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely seeing all of that, right? And so, you know, it's it's I'm seeing money reallocated more than anything before. And we we like I, I can't stress the amount of times I say this, like we just need to continue to apply the pressure to these companies, these organizations. Um, you know, I, I, I think what what's great about social media and, and the digital landscape is that we have the proof that they made these commitments, but let also show us the proof of where you've allocated that. Um, so many of these companies that I had conversations with, um, even prior to, to coming on it with, with Black Ambition, were like, hey, we've allocated the money, but we don't know what to do. And so we have people that know what to do and you need to be selling, right? Um, the offer that you don't make is the offer that they cannot take. And so like sell to these organizations, pitch to these organizations, pitch to these companies, you have the solution, they have the dollars, right? Um, that, that I think is one part of it. The other part of it that I think is really important and has been kind of like a, a this thing that's kind of been like a, a tension for me when I have conversations is the focus on, on mental health that needs to be a part of this as well, right? My heart aches for the business or the founder or the entrepreneur that spent all of 2019 betting the house, cashing it on the 401k, saying, I'm gonna quit my job, only to quit their job to start their business in February. And all the worst possible scenarios that they had been playing in their head happened in 2020. And so even with the sheer amount of money that has been committed, will they try again? Will they try, period? Will they start that business? And if we're not thinking about um, mental health and baking that into how we are supporting, especially Black entrepreneurs, I think we're doing a big disservice, right? Like a massive disservice to, to, to them. And so that is something that I think we have to be thinking about through, through all of this. But then the other side of that is I think so much concentration, Brendan, has been on you know, the 40% of black businesses that have closed and will not reopen. And no one's talking about the 60% that survived. Right. But what can we learn from the 60% of black businesses that have survived under some of the toughest times of our generation that we can learn from, that we can build better programs on top of the insights that we can gain from that. And, and those that success leaves clues that can better inform us and in how we can support those businesses and then how we can align that with the right amount of dollars. But I think for everyone, again, that was applying pressure, like let's continue to apply the pressure. Let's continue to hold these companies accountable. Um, and then also, you know, I have a 70 year old mentor of mine that was just like, Felicia, she's like, is when I tell people it's big ask season, that's where I get it from. She's like, Felicia, it's big ask season. Like, she's like, I haven't seen anything like this happen since she was like in the 1970s around affirmative action, right? She was just like, you know, not only was it crazy opportunities, but like, she was like, you know, her husband was a investment banker on Wall Street. And she was like, they had training programs for the wives to help the wives close deals. And she's like, the only, she's like, in my lifetime, I haven't seen a moment like this 
that we must capitalize on and 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 hold these people accountable because of the verbal commitments that they made mm-hmm. since the 70s and she's like you know what the same thing happened in the 70s is the same thing that happened now you have certain people that understood exactly what was going on and they said you are going to give me what I need. You had other people kind of know what was going on and they kind of were dipping their toe. And then you had other people questioning and like, what, what is happening in this moment? And they missed what could have been the thing that they grabbed, right? They missed the thing in which they could have aligned certain kind of resources if they understood the full, uh, the full breadth of what was going on and that this is a very finite moment. And so that that is where we are, right? And I think that's some ways that we start to to address that. And then even when you get the funding, you continue to apply pressure because it's not a once in a moment thing. You know, this is not a moment; it's an actual movement, and it's a lifelong commitment that these companies need to have to solving this problem. I think that's the other part of it that we also have to surface is that you've got to continue to write the checks year over year. You have to bake this into the ethos of your company that this is always going to be something that you're keeping top of mind and that you're funding at the highest level. That is when we start taking this serious. Because in this moment, I think some people are apprehensive because it's like, yeah, you just want to throw a check at it and keep moving. Like, no, I, I want to work with the companies that understand and are baking this in for the long term because that's when you are really communicating that this is something that you get, you understand, and you're committed to, you know, working on it long enough to so that you start seeing a seismic shift of the impact that you're hoping um, to align your dollars with. So I want to ask you uh, something that has also come up in a lot of spaces of like, how do you combat this crabs in the barrel mentality? Um, I think that we're constantly thinking about how to like navigate the other, right? Mm -hmm. The person who doesn't understand the culture, the person who doesn't value the culture, the person who doesn't value the people. But when there's such limited opportunity, Mm -hmm. um, the people who care about the people in the communities mm-hmm. tend to go at each other's throats. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that we don't often talk about uh, in the black community, but I think that because I have you here, I really want to kind of see what your thoughts are about this and how to kind of overcome the grab and the barrel mentality. You are black, you are a woman, you are a mother, you mm-hmm. are a wife, you are a sister, a daughter, and a founder. And mm-hmm. All of those things combined can literally lead someone to say like, I need to get mine and you need to get out of my way because I got things I need to do. Yeah. But for someone who literally is like building bridges, building community, serving the community, teaching people how to be better than you almost, you know, yeah. and it's incredible, you know, because at the same, as you talk about investing in entrepreneurs, you're an entrepreneur yourself. Right. And, and I just find it so incredible that you have really kind of like built this like foundation of values. And, and I really want to see that more, um, especially in the black entrepreneurship landscape, but just in the black community yeah. as well, there is a seat at the table for everyone. It is enough space for everyone. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, first of all, I, I'm not in a barrel, right? And so... <laughs> Let's be clear about that. Right, right. So I can't even talk about crabs in a barrel because I'm not in the barrel. And none of us technically are, right? And so, you know, I heard this quote years ago about abundance, right? Abundance is not the thing that we create. It actually exists all around us. 
and what we create as human beings are limitations. And that's what stops us, right? And so when we think about crabs in a barrel, you have a lot of people with a scarcity mindset as opposed to an abundance mindset. And like Jay-Z talked about that as well, where he was just like, have you ever thought about crabs don't exist in a barrel? They exist in the ocean. And so, of course, you're going to have people pulling things down because they're in an environment which they were never intended to be in. And so the easiest thing to do is pull on the thing that is around you because everybody is trying to escape out of the environment that they were never intended to be in to get back to the ocean, which is expansive and where they're always ultimately supposed to be. And so that that's it. Right. I think it's it's all of us to be thinking about no one around you is your competition right? Like you are your competition. The, the, you know, the words that you feed into yourself every single day about what's possible and what's impossible is your competition. That is the only thing that stands in the way. Um, I'm in, I'm in a really amazing mastermind and the, the, the guy who founded the mastermind, Myron, like we were having that conversation because my whole thing is like the pie is big enough for everyone to get a slice. And he was like, no, we don't eat from the pie. Like we eat from the garden. And consumption actually creates more when you eat from a garden, right? And pie, you eat it and, and, and your slice is done, right? It only goes into you. But when you eat an apple and you get to the core of eating that apple, what do you get? More seeds. And when you plant those seeds, you actually grow not only more apples, but more apple trees. And so what we need to be striving for is actually eating from the garden because consumption actually creates more. And I was just like, I was like, okay, yes, right? Like, let's be eating more from the garden because that allows all of us to be replenished and be whole and be nurtured. And as a result of us getting the things that we need out of the garden and consuming, we actually create more. And then everyone around us does not have any lack. And so that's how I look at it, right? Not everyone looks at that. And I think not everyone gets to that point of, clarity in their life. But when you do, it frees you. When you realize that your brother and sister next to you are not your competition and that each and every one of you can win, if you open up your heart and your mind to it, you create an environment where every single person can win. Just because I'm winning, I, it doesn't, it literally does not stop anybody else from winning, right? Like I literally, my life has been centered around helping other people win and helping people not go ne through nearly as much amount of pain that I'm in. And it breaks my heart if anyone ever feels like I'm competition or if I've stopped them from doing or achieving the thing that they want, because that's never been the intention. And I hope that's not the intention of people that are around me. But the reality is you have people that are like that. Right. They see someone winning. And instead of either applauding or saying, let me follow those footsteps, they say, how can I how can I erase those footsteps as fast as I possibly can? And that's just such a horrible waste of energy mm. and the time that we have. Right. And time is the only commodity that none of us can get back. And so why would you ever waste it on hate? Um, and jealousy and not channel that into energy of saying, how can I be the best version of myself? And let's expect that from people that are around, are around us, right? I think the other part of that, Brendan, is us sharing more of, of, of the clues, right? Um, Pharrell always talks about the codes, like sharing more of the codes. There's a way that we are taught things happen, and then there is the reality, right? And if we can share more of that, then things change. You know, I have a, I have a group of friends in like the nonprofit ecosystem building space. And when we're working with funders, like we share, like this is how much they 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 offered us. Why? Because when you go in, I want to make sure that you don't lowball yourself. 
And because if they try you and they can go lower you, they're going to try everybody else. And that's what starts to put up, pit, pit us against us. Like, I think one of the things that pits us against us more than anything are corporations and, and nonprofits and foundations. And I know we probably don't need to go into that today, but they pit us against each other. Who was your competition? Like, why are you asking me that? Like, why are you putting me in the mind frame of someone who is dedicated to impact to be thinking about my brother and sister as competition? Why are you better than this company? No, you should be asking me, how can we collaborate? Who are your collaboration partners? Who are your dream partners in other environments that I'm in, in the mastermind group that I'm in? I don't get asked who who are my um, you know, who who's my competition it creates the environment in which all of us can win. And we need more of that. I think we need to retrain corporations that are funding organizations and companies. We need to retrain foundations and nonprofits because they play a massive role in put, pitting all of us against each other. And no one really talks about that. Ooh, I'm going to have to get some tea after this. <laughs> so this is like an illustration, the garden, Felicia. Black ambition really is the garden, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in, in what's next for Black Ambition. Uh, as you move into the new year, what, what are the plans? What are all the things that you guys got going on? Yeah, a lot. Um, you know, I, I would say as amazing as this past year has been, we did everything virtually, right? And so literally being able to touch entrepreneurs, um, be able to be on HBCU campuses, be able to be um, more connected to ecosystems where where Black people are thriving and helping them thrive or helping them win bigger is what we really want to focus our work around next year and then moving forward. And so um, our goal is to actually increase the prize amount and increase the number of checks that we write next year. I know uh, that, that's the goal. That's the goal, right? Okay. Uh, we're, we're moving towards that. Um, and I feel really good about being able to, to do so. You know, the the other part of that is, you know, we, we have a tour that we're launching an HBCU and kind of like black ecosystem, um, like startup tour. I don't have, we don't have the full title yet, but it's somewhere in what I just said so that we can actually start going to directly to cities, working with entrepreneurs, um, helping them work on their startups, work on their pitches, apply for the competition and know exactly what it takes to have a winning uh, application and go through that process and then be able to provide some direct support to entrepreneurship centers um, and then HBCU campuses that have entrepreneurship centers or hubs. And so those are some of the really big things that I'm excited about next year is literally being able to be entrenched in in, in, in these cities and be a little bit more local um, than we have been able to in the past because of COVID. Oh my goodness. Let's retire Zoom for a while. <laughs> right? right. Let's, let's, get, let's get Zoom. Let's give her a break. Let's right. Get, Zoom, Zoom needs a break. I was a break. I've been telling people, I was like, can we all in December just just go on a Zoom like retreat and just like not do Zooms for the month of December? I think all we all collectively can agree to that. My the fatigue of Zoom <laughs> overcome everyone in my opinion. So so I want to close this conversation out in a way that is really thoughtful of you, Felicia, because I think that you know you have so much more to do, uh, and you are just building a fantastic, fantastic life um, that is going to change and has changed so many people's lives for the better. And I'm curious, when it's all said and done, what do you want your legacy to be? Oof. 
My legacy. Legacy. Um, legacy. You talked about Jay-Z, so I was like, legacy, (laughs) Jay-Z. You know what I mean? You know, you work at Black Ambition, Pharrell, you know, he, you know, used Jay-Z tracks. You know, it just just all kind of comes together in this real nice way. We on Black stage, we're having this real conversation. You know what I mean? It's just, Uh you know, let's close it out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I just, you know, at, at the end of the day, I want Black people to win bigger. That, that's it, right? I, I want nothing more than our communities to be whole. I want us to have massive, massive wealth because we've had it, we've built it for other people and and and, and now it's due to us, right? In whatever way that it looks like. Um, I want us to be safe more than anything, right? I want an environment in which my kids and my grandkids and my great grandkids can like walk out and not be worried that they're not gonna come home. And then, you know, I want, uh, what do they got? The metaverse, I want the, the blackiverse, right? Like I want us to own this new, whatever is being built. I want us to own that, right? I want us to be at the forefront of, of that. Um, in in ways in which our great grandkids will be like they did that and they created this and I am a return, a massive return on their sacrifice. That's what I want, right? I want us to stop fighting for a seat at the table and I want us to remember that we are the house and the table merely sits in just one of the rooms in which the house that we built. Like, I want that for us. I want Black people to realize you do not need to bring a folding chair to the table. I want you to realize that you are the house. And that table, and sometimes that raggedy table, is just sitting in a room <laughs> that you built, that your ancestors built and paid for time and time again. That, that is, that, that's what I want, right? That, that's what I want more than anything. And I know it sounds kind of pie in the sky, but it's my North Star. It's your North Star, Felicia Hatcher, President and CEO of Black Ambition. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for partnering with Black Stage this season. Yeah, this partnership has been fantastic, man. I truly appreciate you and what you're building and what you guys have built and just this vessel, right, for empowerment. Y'all are funding people, too, which is brilliant and amazing. And you're sharing stories, right? And that is that goes back to the essence and the core of who black people are. Like we shared our stories and our passions and instruction and knowledge through griots. And this is very much what that is. And so I thank you Brennan for creating this and stepping out on faith and doing the thing. And I'm excited to see where it goes from here. Felicia Hatcher, everyone, this is Black Stage.